Is that better? Oh. Well, for those watching the live stream, that was all intentional. I did it to spite you. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, well, it's nice to know it, everybody. I'll, um, where was I? All right. Yeah, it can get habitual. Yeah, masks can get kind of boring. We just go, go through the motions. We know what happens. It just, it can be the same old, same old. And, um, and in some ways, yeah, that, that's kind of an issue that it's just the same thing every time. But there's a whole lot of beauty in that because there, sometimes you come to something and your eyes are just like you're everywhere, right? Like super easily distracted. For example, if you've never been into this church before and you try to pray as mass is happening, what happens but you just start like looking around and you're just like, huh, well, how about that? I wonder what that means. Why is that, why is that lily up there with a, with a carpenter square, right? So, and if all of mass was always like that, it would just be kind of, it would be something that we could sit back and we could just kind of gaze at, right? If all of mass was just kind of something new coming at us, it would cause us just to kind of like, we'd be spectators, right? We'd, we'd sit back, we'd just kind of take it all in, we'd, we'd be fed, or maybe we'd be, we'd, something would come at us, but we would, we would just kind of be observers all of the time. So one of the brilliant things about the mass and what we enter into and what we do is that we can actually like prayerfully enter into mass. We can actually say, all right, I, I know what's happening. Like I actually, I don't need to watch because I've seen it a hundred times before. I can sit and I can listen. I can pray. I can kneel here and just follow along. So there's this great ability to just kind of pray right through, right through the mass. And that's what we call participation, right? Participating at mass is important. That, um, like mass isn't a spectator sport, right? It's not something we just sit back, we watch and say, oh yeah, father did a great job with this homily or he can't preach with a darm and somebody should take the mic from him or like he prays it really reverently. He looks so holy when he's celebrating mass. Like that's, that's not the way mass is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a spectator sport. We actually participate. And there's three ways, I think, maybe three levels of participation. And maybe the top one, right? The most, um, I don't know if this is the top Maybe the last one, the last level of participation we get to is like being a server or reading at mass or being an usher. Like that's the last part of participation because that's us doing something at mass, right? But there has to come something before that. So if that's the last one that we get to, maybe the next one would probably be what you might call like external participation, knowing the responses and with your spirit. Pray, or may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. Lift, we lift them up to the Lord. So knowing that and saying those words is probably the second form of participation, second level. But the most basic level of participation is interiorly, right? The, the most basic level of participation that we do at Mass is we pray, is that we offer our lives, right? This altar is a place of offering. And so what we do is we come in here and we offer our lives. We give God what we're thankful for. We give God what our sufferings are. We give God, um, ask him for his help and everything. Like our most basic level of participation is not, hey, I get to bring up the gifts today. I actually get to participate. It's something more fundamental. It's actually every time you come to mass, you're not here to watch. 
you're here to offer your lives. You're here, one, to listen to the, to the word, listen to the, to the scriptures, but then to give something to the Lord. That's like symbolized in those gifts being brought forward, the bread, the wine, and uh, the money that people offer. So it's not a spectator sport, right? There's this like deep interior participation that has to happen for any of those others. Like if all you do is that middle participation, like saying the words, like that's when it gets really boring, right? It's just like, ah, I know the words, like I can say that. That's when mass is just like a drag because all it is is like call and response. Like Simon says, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Like it just gets so kind of boring that way. So it has to have that interior level of participation. Great. So the mass, the, the structure is, is really incredible because we don't create it, right? It wasn't like some pope one day was like, hmm, what do I want the mass to be like? Now, there might have been moments in history where somebody, you know, somebody uh, got a little creative. But in general, the, uh, the structure of the mass is we get straight out of scripture. Does anybody know the story of the road to Emmaus? Anybody heard of the road to Emmaus? All right. I hope all of our catechists have, right? Catechists, road to Emmaus. So the road to Emmaus, in case you're not unfamiliar with, with the story, is it starts, it's, it's Easter uh, afternoon. So Easter afternoon, these two disciples of Jesus are leaving Jerusalem, walking to this town of Emmaus. And as they're going, they start arguing with each other about their tossing words back and forth about what just happened, right? Jesus just died. And uh, they're like, you know, they're arguing. Well, I won't get into that. So they, and as they're arguing, as they're walking, Jesus pulls up alongside him. But because he rose from the dead, they're not, they don't know it's Jesus. They don't recognize him. And so Jesus just comes up to him. He's like, hey, uh, what are you talking about? And they're like, haven't you heard? Like, everybody's saying about how this Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah, we thought he was going to save us, but he, the people had him put to death. But some people are saying he rose from the dead. That's kind of the scoop. And then Jesus says, oh, how hard, how slow of heart you are to believe. And then we hear Jesus just like opens up all the scriptures to him, right? Jesus talks about how everything leading up from Abraham to the present time was directed at him. So he just kind of talks about all of the Old Testament right there, right? He just talks about all of the scriptures. And then they, they're going to go to this town of Emmaus, and it says Jesus makes this invitation that, they're gonna, that he's going to keep going. They don't know it's Jesus still. And they say, stay with us, right? They say this, come on, stay, eat with us. And so they get to the home, and Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. And then we hear their eyes are open and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So you can see like the outline, right? So they come as people searching for God and then Jesus opens up all the scriptures to them and then they break bread and they're nourished and they see Jesus, right? That same structure is what happens in the mass, in the road to Emmaus, where it starts with people looking for God, then they, we talk about the scriptures, we have the homily, we hear the gospel, and then Jesus is made known to us in the breaking of the bread. And so then those two apostles leave, right? As soon as they recognize Jesus, he disappears because he's right there before them in the Eucharist. And then as they go back, as they talk to each other, they say, were not our hearts burning within us when he spoke to us on the way and when he broke bread? 
So that's like the goal for us, right? Our hearts to burn within us. So that's where we get like kind of the structure of the mass is straight from that story of the road to Emmaus. But there's other parts of the scriptures we could point to, but we don't have all night. You think about like the last supper, what Jesus does there. We're going to quote that at mass um, in John six, where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. So that's all there. But maybe one of the most fascinating things is this guy by the name of St. Justin dies in the year in 165. And while he's still alive, so this is 165, this is like a long time ago. He writes a letter to people explaining what Christians are all about, explaining what they do. And he says this, this is in the year, remember he's dead in 165. So this probably happens before that. He says, on the day called Sunday, which is really important because we gather for mass on Sunday. There are some Christians though that say the Sabbath is Saturday. They're changing what the early church did in the year 165. So anyways, so on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. That's kind of neat because we have people that live outside of town and we have people that live inside town. So everybody gathers in one place and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Memoirs of the apostles, St. Paul, a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, reading from the first letter of St. Peter, or the prophets, a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So they read the memoirs of the apostles and the prophets. I love the line, as long as time permits. Like, it's like Palm Sunday every day for them, right? They get these huge long readings. So, all right. And when the reader has ceased... The president, so the one who presides, verbally instructs and exhorts to the invitation of these good, imitation of these good things. So the one who presides instructs. He gives, what do we call it, Lance? What is he doing? Instructing about readings. Begins with a, and ends with an homily. Homily. I knew you had it in there. Your mom is so proud of you right now. Yeah. Thanks, mom. <laughs> all right, and then we all rise together and pray, right? So what happens after the homily? Everybody rises and we say, for the church that, and for Pope Francis, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer, right? All rise and pray. As we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. Bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in a like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent saying, amen, or maybe amen, right? That's exactly how our Eucharistic prayer ends. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. He's dead in 165. Right? And you could say the exact same thing about we do. So that's really kind of fascinating that we haven't really changed the general outline of the Mass in, oh, 1850 years at the least, right? Probably goes back to the earliest times of the, of the apostles. So that's really fascinating. I mean, that's mind blowing that the same thing they did is the same thing we do. So we're not making this up. It's not something that, you know, I decided, well, this is kind of cool. Let's do it this way. Let's do the readings first and then the Eucharist. But, you know, Father Jedediah, when he first got here, he wanted to flip-flop. I said, Father Jedediah, we're not going to do that. I'm just kidding. There was, there was none of that. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> so, all right, any questions up to this point? It's kind of like the introduction. All right, speak now. No? Okay. So, when we're getting ready for Mass, one, we need some stuff, right? So, we've got some stuff here. Might know what this is called? This is like the fanciest one that we have. Chalice. Yes, this is absolutely beautiful. It's been recently kind of cleaned up a little bit. So you got a chalice, and then this little guy, this little um, linen is called a purificator. It's used to purify. And then you get a patent, and on the patent is a piece of bread, a host. Actually, does anybody know what this one's called? Okay, ciborium. Anyway, how do you tell the difference between a chalice and a ciborium? Ciborium has a lid, but also there's one little thing that's different in a ciborium. Like if there's no lid, how to tell the difference? Of course, this one's a little wider than that one, but their chalice is this wide. It's shorter. But on the inside, there's a little bump, right? Can you see that? Any idea why there might be a little bit of a bump? Huh? Bump. That's exactly it. So as you're distributing Holy Communion, you got to pick out all of those hosts right there. So if, uh, if you get down to the last one, you can't really get it out without sliding all the way. So there's a little bread. You can pop it up just like a little ramp, grab the host, and you're, you're ready to distribute. So a little bump. Not to be confused with a baby bump. All right. This is a pall. A pall is like a covering. So this is going on top. It covers... And then you get a little chalice veil. Chalice veil. Why do we veil stuff? Who else wears a veil? A bride wears a veil, right? It's normally covering their face, right? And so you cover something beautiful, and then there's a reveal, right? A veil is then used to reveal something beautiful. The bride's face, normally. Or another kind of veil, a mask, right? Okay. A little political joke, huh? Uh, <laughs> you keep slapping your knee. <laughs> Michelle, your son's being mean to me. <laughs> All right, and then this last thing is a, uh, it's called a burst. Not to be confused with a purse. It's a burst, and inside is a corporal. And a corporal is a linen that's laid out, and you see us unfold this on the altar, and it's basically, it's used to catch particles, right? We believe that each and every particle of, of, uh, of what appears to be bread is the Eucharist. So um, since it is the body of Christ, you want to you wanna, uh, be as careful as possible with it. So that's all, the, uh, all those vestments and um, vessels, I guess. We got some cruets here. You got one with the wine, one for the water. Okay. Of course, we got the tabernacle there. Always give Jesus his due. All right, and then you get vested for mass, right? And um, so there's a couple vestments, five vestments, and um, could you grab a dalmatic? Thanks. So this first one is called an amos. So an amos um, goes over over the head, kind of over the neck, and like like so. I'm actually going to take off the mic. Could you hold it like right here? Thanks, Lance. All right, so in Amos, um, it, um, what's the prayer? So there's a prayer with each vestment, and the Amos kind of has like a, has a helmet type 
uh, characteristic to it, like a like so. Um, but the the prayer that's prayed when you vest with an amos is, oh my gosh, I forget it. Oh, Lance. Yeah, give, oh, uh, Lord, set a helmet of salvation on my head and fend off all the assaults of the devil. Amos. Thanks, Lance. So uh, one, of the, one of the practical things for an Amos, two practical things, is one that all of our clothing is supposed to be covered. So we wear vestments because we're going into something new, right? We're going into something, we're entering into God's liturgy, into the offering of Christ. And so we cover all of our clothes. So this covers up everything on our neck. Also kind of practical thing, it kind of catches sweat. So, you know, things get a little hot when you wear this, this many layers. So it does that. All right, anybody know what this one's called? An alb. Where do we get, anybody? All right, anybody watch Harry Potter here? Anybody seen Harry Potter? All right, Miss Gerstner. What is the name of the headmaster of Hogwarts for six out of the seven books? Albus Dumbledore. What color is Albus Dumbledore's beard? White. So he, he has a white beard. The Latin word for white is albus. So he's literally named for white. So albus Dumbledore, this thing's called an alb because it's white. There's your Harry Potter lesson for the day. So the question was, do I always wear the black cassock under the alb? Uh, if I'm wearing a cassock, generally, unless I'm somewhere that's really hot and there's no air conditioning, in which case, normally, uh, a lot of times the cassock comes off in the sacristy because it's just far too hot. Yeah, you, little, you just kind of get used to sweating. So, sad as that sounds. All right, so the, uh, the prayer when the alb is put on is, Make me white, O Lord, and cleanse my heart, that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may deserve an eternal reward. So if you remember, well, you don't remember your baptism. Does anybody remember their baptism? Anybody baptized later in life? Okay, we've got some that remember their baptism. Um, the garment that's put on after you're baptized is a white garment, right? So this alb is a reminder of our baptismal garment. So it's a reminder of me and my baptismal garment. All right, this one is a cincture, not a rope, but cincture is basically comes from the Latin word, Father Jedediah informed me this last time, the Latin word for belt, cinturon. I think that's Spanish, right? Yeah, cinturon. Anybody know Spanish? Does that check out? Great. Thanks, Lance. All right, um, so that's a cincture. Gird me, O Lord, with the girdle of purity and extinguish in me the fire of concupiscence that the virtue of chastity may be in me, what's that last word? May abide in me. So this one's about our promise of celibacy, the, the life of chastity, uh, we're to live that. This is a reminder of that, the cincture. All right. This is a stole. So a stole is a, um, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, it seems that the apostle John's about ready to celebrate mass and he has a garment, an, or a garment around his neck that hangs around his neck. The stole is that garment. So it goes around and you can kind of tie it so it stays in place and it doesn't float around everywhere. 
So a stole is a sign of basically like the, the priestly office, so the ability to do what God gives us the ability to do. So you notice we'll wear a stole in the confessional, at baptism, at any of the sacraments, when we're blessing things, stole's for that. And the prayer is, restore to me, O Lord, the store of immortality, which I lost through the collusion of our first parents, and unworthy as I am to approach thy sacred mysteries, my yet attain eternal joy. All right. And then the last one is a chasuble. And it's a sign of charity, right? So the love is supposed to cover everything. A love of, uh, the love of God covers absolutely every part of us. And so it's more important than, than the stole because charity is supposed to cover, cover all. Some priests you might have seen of wear a stole over top of their chasuble. Um, but that's like your, the power of your office coming above love of God. And that's kind of backwards. So, so it goes this way. It's the way the church asks us to do it. And the, uh, the prayer is, O Lord, who said, my yoke is easy and my burden light, grant that I may carry it so that I may merit thy grace. All right, so those are the priest's vestments. A bishop would have his miter, his crozier, a pectoral cross, a cross around his neck. But a deacon has something a little different. So this is called a dalmatic, which a deacon wears. What do you think, what are the differences between what a priest and a deacon wears? Buddy? Sleeves, yeah. So there's sleeves on a dalmatic. Um, and then also the stole. So if you remember, mine hung directly around my neck. A deacon's stole hangs across there, kind of across diagonally. So um, from left shoulder to right hip. So that's the, that's the, uh, the chief difference is there. Yeah. You're not allowed to dispense with any of those. So these are all what the church asks us to celebrate mass. So, um, yeah, there's none that says, if you're doing this privately, you can do whatever you want. Like, so these are what's, what's asked for us to wear every time Mass is celebrated, whether we're in St. Peter's Basilica or whether we're on the lake in the side of Indian Lake. So, yeah, great question. Incidentally enough, next week at this time, I'll be at my parents' house. And at my parents' house, at least daily Mass, that's normally what happens. Bring all my vestments, bring all the chasuble, uh, chalice, all that sort of stuff, and have mass in my parents' house. So that's how it works on the road show. Any other questions? Yeah, you can, you can order chasubles. Like, you can get them custom-made. You can buy them off the rack. Um, yeah, it's pretty much like anything else. Like, the more handcrafted, the more, um, the more handworked embroidery, the more custom cut you want it, the more you can pay. So, but if you're like the chasubles we, we normally wear are, uh, are ones that are like, you know, they're going to fit me, they're going to fit Father, Jedi, Je, Father Jedediah, and they're going to fit Father Jared when he was here. So, you know, if you're getting all of those people to fit the same chasuble, it's going to look short on me and long on others. So... If anyone has a question, raise your hand, and then I'm going to repeat the question that you asked in the microphone, so everyone on oh. Facebook Live can ask. Should I repeat those questions? Yeah, either you can. Okay. Or I didn't think of that. They just asked, some chasubles are long, some are short. 
On, most, on me, most of them look short. You can get them different lengths. So any other questions while we're, we're talking about vestments? Oh, right in front of me. Oh boy, that's a whole can of worms. All right, uh, there, are, there are, yeah. So there's, oh yeah, is there a, spe <laughs> thank you. Is there a special shop you have to go to to get these, right? You're not going to Walmart, you're not going to DG to get vestments for mass. Um, so the, probably the closest place to get vestments is Dayton Church Supply in downtown Dayton. They can order vestments, they, they can get some off the rack, this one, any guess? No, you're not going to guess. Guadalajara, Mexico. There are nuns that make vestments in Guadalajara, Mexico. My friends got me this one for my ordination. Um, yeah, you can get them all over. There's a place, if you're really looking, you're looking to spend some money, you can go up to the House of Hansen in Chicago. They'll have a nice little tailor, probably an old Italian guy. Is he Italian? That does all the measurements. I've never been there before. I guess Father Jedediah hasn't either. We're, we're, uh, we haven't been there. So yeah, yeah, you can, you can, and you, so you can order them online, you can order them off, uh, offline, all those sorts of things. Deb. Sure. So the question was, could somebody make a vestment, right? Could somebody um, make a vestment, whether, you know, your grandmother, know, my grandmother knows how to sew, or my mom knows how to sew, or if you've got a friend, there is no, there is no, um, like, you have to be certified by the archbishop to make vestments. There's no, like, you have to get your license to make vestments. Now, they say that they should be dignified, right? We're doing the most important thing that happens on earth. So they should have the dignity of that. And generally, you kind of have to know what you're doing with the cuts, with this, and just all the different styles. So if you notice, like, there's ones that are cut like this, and like we could go a whole can of worms on this. This is called generally a semi-Gothic vestment. It's got uh, the banding that comes down here and some of them are cut, they call them a fiddleback. So you notice like the, the back is, is kind of rounded on the bottom and then the front is about cut to about, about there maybe. So you'll see like the sleeves of the alb shown through. Everybody likes their style. There's ones that like monks are more wearing and they're kind of more in, uh, in you say cold weather areas. And so they're, they're huge. They're like really thick and heavy because if you're celebrating mass in an unheated church in Norway, like you're going to, you're going to need, you're going to need like a one made out of sheep wool. So, so anybody can make them, but, um, if anybody ever asks you like, if anybody ever asked me, like, so-and-so's getting ordained, what should I, should I give them a vestment? I would say, ask them, right? Because everybody kind of has their own, their own preferences, their own tastes. And to, to hand somebody something and expect they're going to use it, but it looks like a fifth grader cut it out. It's like, mm. like, I've, I've had, I'll put it this way. I've had people give me vestments, nobody here, and I have, I've, I'm not going to wear them for masks because they're completely, <laughs> I'd be embarrassed to go before the Lord and do it. So, there's that. That might sound a little snobbery, but um, I love Jesus too much to do something. Well, question in the back. Oh, wait, we got two questions going on right now. Let me, ladies first, why do I wear a cassock? Uh, three quick reasons. In the summer, I can wear shorts underneath. 
I have massive pockets in this cassock. So right now, if you need a litany of trust, I can give that to you. If you need our rosary guide, I can give that to you. If you need your confession heard, I have a stole ready for you. Uh, there was a point in my life where if it was your birthday, I had birthday candles in my cassock pockets. Um, I used all the birthday candles. The question was, why do I wear a cassock as opposed to, a, um, as opposed to um, pants? There's pants on under the cassock unless they're shorts. Um, and then the third reason, and probably the, the best, well, actually there's four reasons. The one is saints often wear the cassock, right? Like I see, you see a picture of a saint, they're rocking a cassock. Like John Paul II, when he was father, Carol Wojtyla, he's always in his cassock. John Vianney, all these great saints wearing their cassock. And then you're always ready for, to celebrate the sacraments. Like I'm ready to, you're kind of ready to go when you, when I go out to the cemetery, right? I don't have to get everything on to put on this alb. I can throw a surplus over top. That's the white one that goes like down to the knees. Throw that on. You're ready to baptize somebody. You're ready to go into the confessional. Like you're just always ready to serve the Lord. So that's why I like it. Those four reasons, shorts, pockets, saints, celebrate the sacraments. Question in the back. How much does this one cost? How much do you think it costs? It was a gift to me, so. 120? I think it was like 450. So it's handmade by religious sisters, including the, uh, in the back, the image of Mary. So yeah, they're not cheap, right? Anything time somebody gets handmade, we do, we do our best for the Lord though. Yeah, that makes it a very nice gift. All right, great questions. Any other questions while we're at it? We'll see, huh? We'll see. Uh, some of them I will. Like, this was a gift from friends, so this will definitely come with me. Oh, gosh, repeat the questions. Do, I do you take your vestments with you when you go? So generally, parishes have a set of vestments. So those, of course, belong to the parish. They'll stay. Uh, but something like this, like this, this one's a gift from some friends that I've been friends with for years. So that's coming with me. Uh, and generally, the, the vestment that you wore at your first mass, you're buried in. So the one that I wore at my first mass after I was ordained, like that's, that's going to be, that's going with me forever. So... Great question. Thanks for the reminder, Angie. All right, we're ready to start Mass. So Mass starts and there's a procession, right? There's five processions in Mass. I think there's five. Maybe there's four. Do you think you know the five processions at Mass? I already gave you one. There's the opening procession, right? Coming up. When's another one when people are moving? in a direction. The offertory, right? Bread and wine are coming up, all right? The beginning, the offertory. One's another one. Sometimes people carry candles and the deacon's carrying a book. The gospel procession, right? There's one that all of you get to participate in. The communion procession. And then heading out. I don't know if that's technically a conclusion. Do I... The recessional, that's right. So those are the five. So we've got the entrance procession, the gospel procession, the offertory procession, the communion procession, and then the recessional heading out. 
Those are important because uh, you see like God's people are always on the move and they're always heading somewhere. And we got a great example of it this Sunday or last Sunday, the three wise men, right? The three wise men are on this journey to meet the Lord, right? They're in procession. These guys going together to present gifts to the Lord. Sounds a whole lot like the offertory procession where people come up, process up towards the Lord to present gifts. So we start with the entrance procession. We kiss the altar. It's one of my favorite parts. Get to kiss the one I love. Like, I'm not married. I don't have a wife. Nobody I'm kissing. Would I kiss the altar? And what's the other thing I kiss at Mass? The book of the Gospels. That's right. Kissing the word of the Lord. I love that part. All right. So we come up to the chair. And... One, one thing you notice when we're at the chair is which direction we're facing, right? If we're facing out towards you, we're talking to you. If we're facing towards the altar, we're talking to the Lord, right? So I, you notice this like real clearly when I say, let us pray. Talking to you, then you turn and you pray. When you pray, you're talking to the Lord. There's also one other thing when we say, let us pray. If you're on this side, you can see it really well, but there's this stained glass window here of Christmas. And one of the things I noticed as I was looking at that on Christmas morning is the hand position of Jesus and Mary. And it's dark outside, which is a real shame, but you can tell Mary's hands are like this, right? She's looking at the Lord in awe and Joseph's hands, he's got one on the staff, but the other one's up like that. So this kind of like looking at God in awe. So whenever our hands are like this, we're talking to God. And then except, you know, the few times like the Lord be with you. It's kind of like that invitation from the Lord. So I'm jumping ahead though. Any questions? All right, we start with the sign of the cross. Not terribly surprising, right? We start a lot of our prayers with the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But in the cross is like everything, right? The fact that God is a trinity of persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the great commission. People are sent out to baptize in that. There's this great kind of invitation to the trinity. And then, of course, the cross, right? It's on the cross that Jesus redeems us. It's on that sacrifice, the offering of his life, that he takes everything evil upon himself. And then, of course, he rises from the dead to, to show he's victorious over it. So that one little, like, two and a half seconds start to mass, there's so much packed into it. And then we say, the Lord be with you. Which, when's another time, what's the prayer that we say, the Lord is with you a lot? Anybody know this one? The Lord is with you. Hail Mary, right? Full of grace, the Lord is with you. And that's the angel's greeting to Mary. The Lord is with you. And any time you hear the Lord is with you, like Moses, Abraham, when they hear the Lord is with you, something daunting is about ready to happen. You know the four times we say the Lord be with you at mass? I'll give, I just gave you this one, the entrance. When's the other time we say the Lord be with you? Before, what was it? Before the gospel. We say the peace of the Lord be with you. Similar. The Lord be with you. So the gospel is important, right? So something, when you hear the Lord be with you, it's that sign that something important is going to happen. Before the gospel, the Lord be with you. 
the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts, right? That's at the start of the Eucharistic prayer. And then the Lord be with you at the final blessing. So you're about ready to be blessed, to go out and be a saint. And then we acknowledge our sins, which is really kind of fascinating. Like the very first thing, like, hey, we're all here for mass. Don't forget you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Like that's how mass starts. Kind of funny that that's the way we start things, but it makes perfect sense. You know the story when Peter gets called, he, he, they get this miraculous catch of fish and Peter falls at the knees of Jesus and says, Lord, depart from me from I am a sinful man. And then they head on out, right? Be, that's how Peter starts his, his life with Jesus is this recognition of his sinfulness. And then from there, he's ready, he's ready to follow the Lord. Same thing happens with us at mass. We begin by recognizing our sinfulness and from there we're, we're ready to go. All right, and then after we do that, we sing the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to people of goodwill. Anybody know where we get those words from? Anybody? No? The angels, right? The angels go to the shepherds. They say that they have that message of good news. And so if you pay attention to Mass and you know your Bible, like, we're just like uh, copy and pasting from Mass all the time, or from the Bible all the time. The Mass is just taking all of these words from Scripture, even the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We stole that from St. Paul. That's in one of his letters. I think it's to the Galatians. So we are, yeah, we're just stealing it all the time, and that's good. All right, and then we say, let us pray. And I kind of already talked about uh, those prayers that are offered to God. We're facing there. We're imitating Mary and St. Joseph in the window there. And that's the entrance of mass. Any questions up to there? Do we have any questions online? Not at the moment. I'll be darned. Okay. And then we're going to hear the word of the Lord, right? We're going to hear, um, we're going to hear the God's word spoken to us, right? It's not so much that it's a lesson about God, right? It's not like, hey, let me tell you something about God. It's God speaking to his people, right? It's so, it's, it's so much more than just, well, let's hear about God. It's actually the word of the Lord coming out to us. So it's like really important to be attentive because this is actually listening to the sacred scripture is more important than my homily, right? Hearing God's word proclaimed is more important than anything I'm going to say. It's so much more important because it's actually God speaking to you, not him through some kind of some imperfect vessel like me. It's actually God's word coming directly to you. So the first reading in the, well, I guess the scriptures at mass are in a cycle, right? Every so many years, we restart the cycle. Does anybody know how many years our cycle is? What is it? Three. Which one are we in right now? A, B, or C? Hmm. Who says A? Who says we're in year A? We got, we got a couple. Who says B? We got a couple Bs. Who says C? Most people say C. The answer is B. We're in year B of sacred scripture. Which, which gospel do you think we read mostly in year B? Mark, right? What do you think we read most of in year A? Matthew, yeah, and year C is going to be Luke. Now, where does John fit into here? John get 
Lance, he gets sprinkled in all the time. So like John, we're going to hear John in the Easter season. In the middle of this year, Mark's gospel's the shortest. So in the summer, we're going to get like five or six weekends where we get John's gospel. Uh, I think next week we have John's gospel too. So he just kind of gets sprinkled in a little bit throughout the year. Lent, we get a lot of, we get some hearty, meaty passes of John. Good Friday, we always get the passion of John. So year A, Matthew. Year B, what we're in now, Mark, year C, Luke. And we get the, re- the um, so what's the first reading generally? The gospel, the third one, we already got Matthew, Mark, Luke. Where do we get the first reading from? The Old Testament and sometimes which book from the New Testament? This is bonus points right here. During Easter time. The Acts of the Apostles. So we get the early church, what the first followers of Jesus. So that's the first one. Mostly it's the Old Testament. And if you pay attention, and if we do a decent job in a homily, normally, normally, the first reading in the Old Testament relates to the gospel. The second reading kind of stands on its own most of the time. The second reading's from, where's the second reading come from? The New Testament. Who writes the New Testament? Who are we talking? These are letters from... St. Paul a lot, St. Peter, St. John, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation sometime. So yeah, so we get those readings. Good work. I have a question. Question. There's a question of if a priest skips a part of the mass and then realizes it, do you go back or do you hope that nobody noticed it? Uh, It depends what part, right? If I skip the part that says, take this, all of you, and eat of it, this is my body given up for you, you, somebody stop me, right? You stop me right away. Or if I say the wrong ones, right? If I'm holding the chalice and I say, this is my body given up for you, somebody shout, Father, redo that. That's the wrong one. Like, I'm, you think I'm kidding. I'm not. Because I want you all to receive the Eucharist. I don't want you to receive a piece of bread. So it depends what I miss, right? If I skip... If I forget to say the Lord be with you before the final blessing, like I, I'm not bringing everybody back in the church and saying like, I missed that, sorry. Or, um, you know, you forget the Gloria, like those sorts of things. Like there's certain things like, I'm, I'm thinking in my head like, oh, what would I do if I forgot the gospel? I'd probably retire. <laughs> like if I forget something that important, I, I was at mass one time and the priest went straight from the mystery of faith right? So you say, so you consecrate the bread to the body of Christ. You consecrate the, the precious blood. And then you say the mystery of faith. And everybody says, you know, we proclaim your death, O Lord, or profess your resurrection. And then there's a part of the Eucharistic prayer that's pretty important. Well, and then you get to the through him and with him and in him, right? And, uh, and then the Our Father. This whole chunk right here got lost. And as soon as he said the mystery of faith, and we said, we proclaim your death, O Lord, he went straight to, at the Savior's command, informed by divine teaching, we dare to say, I'm like, we forgot something, Father. And he needed to retire. So if I forget a lot of the Mass, that's a pretty good sign that I went about five years longer than I should have. So, all right, Lisa. The preface. Right, so the question, I was guess, not quite a question there, but just a statement, and I think that's right. So 
uh, someone who's at a mass, they forgot the preface. So the preface is the, the prayer that goes, it starts with the Lord be with you and with your spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And then there's a prayer. It is truly right and just our duty and our salvation, ba, 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 and it ends with the holy, holy, holy. That's a pretty important part of the mass. So that's one that like, if you kind of get going in the Eucharistic prayer, like, nah, we got to come back. So kudos to that priest to have the humility to say, I screwed up. Let's take it from the top. Any other questions? All right. So the gospel, we got the gospel. Oh, so I think this is the first quiet prayer. So if you notice, as the priest or as the deacon comes to, to uh, me, if the deacon's going to do the gospel, anybody know what he comes? Servers might know this, what the deacon says. He says, your blessing, Father. I'm like, you got it, deacon. <laughs> may the Lord be in your heart and on the, your lips that you may proclaim his holy gospel worthily and well in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's what it is as a deacon. May the Lord be in your heart and on your lips that you may proclaim his holy gospel worthily and well in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If the priest is doing the, the gospel himself, we bow at the altar and you might see our lips moving, but it's supposed to be, um, I think the word is sotto voce, is that right? So that, only, so that only, basically only I can hear. So it's a quiet prayer to the Lord, which you think, like maybe you get this like, how come he's praying and none of us can hear it? Like I kind of feel left out of this. I don't know why that started, but my own personal take on it is, as a priest, it can be very public. Every prayer that you make, right? Everything you do, you're praying in public. So it's one of those reminders to say, oh no, you're supposed to be praying this too, right? Like this isn't, this isn't some public act that you're doing. There's something interior for me too that I'm supposed to be praying this mass. So this is nobody's gonna hear me say, may the Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may, wait a minute, Cleanse my heart and my lips, almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. So that's mine. There's a little allusion there to the book of the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah, in the start of his, his book, he thinks like, I'm too young. I've got unclean lips. I can't possibly be a prophet. And the Lord says, I'll take care of that. He takes a burning coal, puts it on his lips to cleanse his lips, cleanse his heart. He's ready to be a prophet. So, um, so that's that prayer. Cleanse my heart and my lips, almighty God, that I may worthily. It's a little allusion to Isaiah. Question. That's one of the best questions I've ever had. Does mass, maybe not the best, but it's a good question. Uh, does mass ever come easy to us? Yeah. Like you can go on autopilot pretty easy. And then you just kind of like, and you kind of get so like, you know, the words, um, yeah, you could just, yeah, sorry. I'm trying to think of something, just go, but it just becomes like, you know how it goes and you can just kind of autopilot right through it. But that's not the way the mass is supposed to be. And here's the thing, when you celebrate three masses in a day, like when we have 7, 30, 9, 15, 11, that 11 o'clock, you're just like, I got to get through this. Like, I don't, even you're at the homily, you're like, I don't know what I said between the 4.30 mass and the 9.15. Sorry, you're kind of going to get, you're going to get the old repeater. Um, so it does kind of, you can hit autopilot and that's not the way it's supposed to be, right? That's not the way, like one, the people of God deserve better. One, God deserves better. And two, that's not how you want to pray the mass, right? Um, so it is nice though, as you get a little bit more comfortable to say like, okay, I don't have to constantly remember what comes next because 
Like, you can go off my lead pretty well, but it's fun to have, I don't know, fun's the right word, but it's every now and then I celebrate mass and it's just me and somebody else. And the first time somebody's at mass just by themselves and the priest, it's total deer in headlights. Because I'm like, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And they're like, what now? And then you have to say, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, right? And you could imagine, like, if you're ever at Mass and there's, like, nobody around you and you're, like, the front pew and there's nobody for a bunch of pews, like, you don't know when to stand. Like, you see this at funerals all the time. Like, something will just be a little different and everybody's kind of like, oh, what do we do? Um... Watch the servers. They know what they're doing normally. All right. So we get to the gospel, right? And everybody stands for the gospel, which is really interesting. And it's in the book of Nehemiah, they, they are coming back from being in exile. And as Nehemiah reads the law, everybody stands. And it's kind of cool because you think about like in the military, attention, everybody, boom, pops right up. Colonel's about ready to give his orders. The, the captain's about ready to speak. And they're standing, like, ready to hear what he's going to say, the instructions they're going to give. And that's the same thing we do for the Lord, right? All right, Jesus is speaking to us. We better be attentive. Like, we got to be full, full ears, full, full arms. Like, we're not just going to, like, do that. Um, we're actually going to focus. So, yeah. So everybody pops up for the, uh, for the homily. Oh, no, not for the homily. For the gospel. All right, then we preach. Homily simply is like an instruction. It's not, you know, a homily is, I guess I could go into this for a while, but it's not just about speaking well. Of course, you should be able to speak well. It's not just about knowing theology. Of course, you should know some sort of theology. It's about being given this task uh, to preach. When a deacon is ordained, he's handed a, a book of the Gospels, and he's given this instruction Receive the gospel of Christ, whose herald you have become. Teach what you believe, practice and practice what you preach. There's a line in there I'm missing. But it's basically like this gospel has been entrusted to you to be preached by your life and by your, by your words. Like conform your life to this gospel. So it's kind of like a, in some ways, gospel books are kind of heavy. And you're like, it should be. The gospel's a heavy responsibility. So... All right, so then everybody's, you know, we got the, we got the um, homily. Then what comes next? The Nicene Creed. All right, yeah, we stand up for the creed. And so basically what the scriptures say at length, the creed says short. What the scriptures take <clears throat> pages upon pages, the creed just gives us a nice little summary. A couple things about the creed, maybe just one thing. I don't know what time we're at. Oh boy. So the creed, right? At one point in the creed, we bow. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate to the Virgin Mary and became man. Why is that the point that we bow? Why don't we bow and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures, right? The resurrection's pretty important. Jesus rose from the dead. Why do we bow at the part when Jesus was incarnate? Like Christmas, he comes among us. Any guesses? And why do we bow at that point? Why don't we give it like a little, he became incarnate, like, you're my boy, Jesus. Hmm? Any guesses? 
So we say, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate to the Virgin Mary and became man. So basically God, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the eternal son of God comes down to earth to dwell among us, right? He comes down from his heavenly throne to dwell among us. So what Jesus does in, by coming incarnate, we imitate with our bodies. Jesus comes down to the earth and we go down to the earth also. So that's why, and that's why at Christmas, <clears throat> the instruction is to kneel at that point because today's the day that Jesus came down. We're going all the way down to remember that and by the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. So that's why at that point we bow because what Jesus does we imitate with our bodies. It's why when we come into mass and when we come into a pew, the appropriate thing to do is to genuflect because in the Eucharist, Jesus comes down upon into earth, right? The God enters into humanity. And so we imitate Jesus comes flesh, dwells among us. We go all the way down to acknowledge that Jesus comes to dwell among us. And so of course it's a, it's a reverence thing, but it's also an imitation of what Jesus does. He comes to dwell among us we're going to go down just as he came down to us. All right. Questions there? It's the creed. Okay, so the question observation was, it has been since I came here that we started bowing at the creed. I can't tell you what you did before I got here. I'll... I'll, I'll all I know is in the mass, in the instructions for the mass, it says, in all bow. So this book is like, let's grab, let's grab the missile here. One of the things I love about the missile is it kind of tells us what to do, right? So there's a part in here. Yeah, so this part right here, so it's awesome. One of the things you love about this missile, the black stuff you say, the red stuff you do. It's really easy to follow along. So for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and then in red at the words that follow and up to and including and became man all bow. So I do, I remember a point in my life I want to say I was probably in sixth or seventh grade when we were professing, we're doing the creed and I saw everybody bow. And I thought, when we start doing that, all right. Like, I, I don't know if we were just told to start doing that then. Probably not. I'm guessing at that age, I just missed it my whole life. And finally I paid attention. So, Okay, so observation 2011 is when this current missile was issued. And I imagine if there was any time for something to change, that's when it would have happened. So that's probably a pretty good, pretty good, pretty good bet. I don't remember what the old one, did it have a, it did bow in the sacramentary? Okay, well, all right. Well, we're halfway through the mass and we're about, we're getting close, so. Same thing happened last time, you know, Lord. All right, so bread and wine are brought forward to the altar. Get everything you need here. So I mentioned the corporal, right? The corporal is that, um, that linen that catches the body of Christ, right? The corpus, like a cor corporal punishment is bodily punishment. So 
um, the corporal catches the body of Christ. You don't really need to know this, but there is a certain way to fold and unfold a corporal so that everything folds in so there's not uh, opportunities for the particles of the Eucharist to fall out. So there's a certain way you fold it every time. Um, It's like a secret language for priests and deacons. It's pretty cool. All right. And then um, maybe sometimes you hear the words of the offering and it's this prayer of the offering of the bread and wine is taken directly from the Jewish faith. Like if you ever have somebody who's Jewish come to mass and they hear this prayer, they're like, hey, you stole that from us. To which we respond, yeah, pretty much. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. And you say, great. All right. And then normally water and wine are mixed. Not normally, water and wine are mixed. And there's a little prayer. Any of the servers know that prayer? I whisper it. You can't hear it. Excuses, excuses. Through the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So water and wine are mixed, and it's a symbol of us sharing in God's divinity, right? Through the Eucharist, we share in God's divine nature. So that little little bit of humanity and divinity coming, or the little bit of water symbolizing humanity entering into divinity, and then we offer, offer the wine. And then what comes next? Washing of the hands. Wash me, O Lord, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. So another reminder, like we're about ready to enter one of the, you know, entering into the the very heart of the mass, the part where God comes to dwell among us. And so another reminder of our own unworthiness, of our sinfulness. Wash me, O Lord, from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Then I say, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And you say, okay, I wanted you to say that one because if you know those words, you know the very heart of the Mass, right? That little prayer that you say, every time you say it, you kind of just like, you can run it off so quick. But that right there is the center of what everything that we do for the praise and glory of your, his name. So what we're doing is we're coming here to praise and glorify God's name. So may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name. That's what we come here to do. We come here to praise God. We don't come here to be entertained. We don't come here to get something. We don't even come here to be fed. The first thing we do is we come to praise for our good. So there is something that comes good for us and the good of all his holy church. So what we do here is for the praise of God's name for our good to benefit us and for the good of the whole world, right? We pray for the entire world, which is super important these days, right? Like it's really important that we come here, right? We pray for our Pope. We pray for all those who have died. We pray for um, all of those who are suffering. So it's really important that line um, there. All right. All right, and then, so then there's another prayer of um, the prayer. It kind of goes with the mass for the day. It's called the prayer over the offerings. And, um, and then the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. If you ever read the book of Revelation at the very start, like John is, um, John's taken up into like ecstasy into heaven and he sees the glories of God. Like that's what we're imitating, right? Lift up your hearts. It's time to, it's time for us to go up to heaven. 
and you say, we've lifted them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. And then, um, and then that preface, we talked a little bit about the preface already. And that ends with the holy, holy, holy. Anybody know the words for holy, holy, holy in Latin? Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. <clears throat> Tomorrow, I didn't know how much I was going to get to this, but I can't help myself. Tomorrow, this altar is getting redone. And right here, so they're going to build some wood around it, so it kind of will look like it'll match the rest of this. But there's going to be a piece of wood here, and it'll be open for three words. And those three words will be sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. So you'll see through the wood, you'll see the marble piercing through with those three words, holy, holy, holy. If you've ever been to Immaculate Conception and Botkins on their marble altar, those three words are, are right there also. So if you're, when you're here this weekend, you'll see that and you'll be like, hey, I know what that means. So there'll be some other stuff. It's going to be a good day tomorrow. It's going to be a real good day. So we say that word and that holy, 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 right? We don't just pull that out of thin air. That's in the, straight from the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So again, we're just pulling straight from scripture, copy and paste uh, right from the word of the Lord. All right. <clears throat> yes, question. Yeah, so the question is when we say lift up your hearts, people say we lift them up to the Lord and they kind of, uh, they do the same thing we do, right? The priest, it says, and he elevates his hands, something like that might not be the exact word. The rubrics of mass are pretty specific. I mean, they're not like exact specific, but for example, at the gospel, it says that the people imitate the deacon or the priest with, may the Lord be on my heart and my lips and in my head, right? So the rubrics say you do that. It doesn't say anything about that. So my general inclination is if it says it doesn't say anything, that means probably shouldn't invent something. This might get me in hot water, but it doesn't say anything to do with our hands during the Our Father, right? People do all sorts of stuff with their hands at the Our Father. The right doesn't say anything to do. It says for us to hold our hands like this. Everybody else, it doesn't say grab the person's hand. It doesn't say like make somebody really uncomfortable by grabbing their hand and not letting them say no if they don't want to touch you. If you can't tell that happened to me in my life, I have a bit of PTSD. <laughs> my dad told me one time, uh, I was a young boy, my mom was out of town, he brought us boys to mass, and at the sign of peace, somebody leaned in, and to what my dad swears, to kiss him, to which my dad went like this. <laughs> Now, you have to know my dad. My dad grew up in a rough neighborhood of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, yeah. If we go to a restaurant, my dad always sits up against the wall so he can see everybody because he doesn't trust anybody. <laughs> hey, dad, if you're watching, I love you. I'll see you next week. Um, don't punch me when I get in the door. Um, all right. So one of the first parts of the Eucharistic prayer is what we call the epiclesis, right? Put our hands over the gifts and call down the Holy Spirit. And at that point, something happens. The bells ring, right? It's a reminder like, hey, it's really important. So when was somebody else overshadowed, right? We're overshadowing with our hands and Jesus was made present. Overshadow by the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus will be present. Huh? Huh? Mary, right, yeah. There's the window of the Annunciation right there. When the Holy Spirit, you can see, well, you can't see because it's dark, but the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and Jesus is present. Similarly, at Mass, the Holy Spirit overshadows the bread and wine and Jesus becomes present. So, did you fix it too, Lance? There it is. All right, so we do that. And then, um, and then we pretty much get into the institution, right? And we're, um, the institution of the Eucharist happens in four places in sacred scripture we hear about it, quoting Jesus, which means it's probably pretty important, which is why we just quote it in our own celebration of Mass. Happens in Matthew, happens in Mark, happens in Luke, and happens in 1 Corinthians, right? John doesn't have the institute, what we call the institution narrative, right? On the night before he was to die, Jesus took bread, gave, that doesn't show up anywhere in John. It does show up in 1 Corinthians. Paul doesn't quote Jesus a lot, but when he does, he quotes him about the Eucharist. There's a couple other parts he does, but so that means like, ah, it's pretty important. So, and then after that, is um, like the offering, right? After that is where we offer, um, you might, and the, the ah, got so many, sorry, I got too many like words and ideas going on in my head. Let's backtrack just a little bit. There are four main Eucharistic prayers and you might know them from the long one, the short one, the medium one and the one like, he hardly ever prays that one and I don't remember that, right? People are laughing, so I think they know what I'm talking about. So how do I identify which one's which? The first one's gonna have a bunch of names, saints and names, right? So that's, um, that's called the Roman Canon, also Eucharistic prayer number, number one. Um, the, the beautiful thing about Eucharistic prayer number one well, there's a lot of beautiful things, but one of the things that you probably, one of the reasons I used it a lot around Christmas time is it has little inserts that get used for particular feast days. So for uh, Christmas and the eight days after Christmas, for the Epiphany, um, for Easter, for the Ascension, for Pentecost. So it's like, yeah, this is the one time a year I can use this part of the prayer. You best better believe I'm going to use it. So, so that's one that has all the names, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Jude and so on. Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus. <clears throat> if there is ever somebody that comes and wants to have a child baptized and said, why did you pick that name? And they said, Father, I heard it in the Eucharistic prayer. Oh my gosh, you like melt my heart. I give you a big old hug. That child like Marcellinus, Marcellinus, Perpetual and Felicity. I mean, they're all great saints. So like the saints are great, um, great ways to name our children. All right, the second Eucharistic prayer is what you might know as the short one, but you might know it from the words, the dewfall, right? We hear this kind of unique word come down upon these gifts like the dewfall. And so that might be one, okay, that's Eucharistic prayer number two. The third one, uh, maybe the, like the giveaway at the start is from the rising of the sun to the setting. So you hear that, you know you're in Eucharistic prayer number three. I was on retreat one time, the priest that was celebrating mass, that was still when it was from east to west, right? This translation is just beautiful. From the rising of the sun to the setting, so much more beautiful than just east to west. He says, from east to west, every time, it was kind of funny. Maybe you had to be there. 
Uh, and then the fourth one has kind of a long start. Um, yeah. If it's the one that you're like, meh, there's no rising of the sun in the setting, no names, no dofall, Eucharistic prayer number four. All right. And they all have kind of the same basic structure, but at the end of the, or after the consecration is, is the offering. So you might hear things like, um, from the gifts that you have given us, this pure victim, this holy victim, this spotless victim, the holy bread of eternal life and the chalice of everlasting salvation. Like we're offering this gift of Jesus Christ back to the Father, which is what Jesus does with his life, right? It's so awesomely represented here, right? That Jesus Christ offers his life to the Father. And it's here in church because that's what we do at Mass. We offer the gift of Christ back to the Father. And there's a general kind of movement of the mass that imitates the life of Jesus. So at the start of Jesus's life, it's important for people to realize they need a savior. It's important for them to realize they're not enough on their own. So at mass, the parallel is we acknowledge our sins. And then Jesus goes about preaching and teaching, right? He goes about like this image, right? He goes about proclaiming the word of God, healing people. And that's what happens at mass, right? It's, it begins with Jesus preaching and teaching. And then from there, he processes in to, to Jerusalem. And then there's this procession up to the altar. And then comes the Last Supper, which is the next thing that happens in our life, where we hear those words from the Last Supper. He takes bread, breaks it, and gives it to them. And then after that's the offering, right? Jesus dies on the cross after the Last Supper. Then comes the offering of the Mass. And then Jesus rises from the dead. And, what ha- and maybe the parallel there is the sign of peace. Every, when Jesus rises from the dead, he walks around saying, peace, peace be with you, right? As he shows up in the upper room in John chapter 20, he says, peace be with you. And he says a little bit, and then he says again, peace be with you. Like peace is the message of Jesus risen from the dead. And then Pentecost happens, right? And the Holy Spirit's kind of poured out on a large number of people. And then there's this large giving out of the gifts of God through the Eucharist. And then after Pentecost, people are sent out into the world. And that's what happens at the end of Mass. You're sent out into the world. So like what happens at Mass parallels the life of Jesus. Acknowledge we're sinners. Hear the preaching. Hear the good news. Process to the place of offering. He processes to Jerusalem. And then there's the Last Supper gives the bread, then the offering, and then peace, and then the gifts of God are spread out, and then we're sent out into the world. So there's a little parallel there. Maybe a not so little parallel, I don't know. What time is this supposed to end? 8.30, 8 8.15? 8.30? We got so much time. Does anybody have any questions? We have questions. Hold on. Does anybody need to like stand up? I realize you're on wooden pews. Anybody need to like do a little little stretch break, kind of bring it around town, SpongeBob style? Am I the only one that's seen that? Okay, thank you. <laughs> you got a question? Is it for the whole group? Good. Good. Questions? Okay, I got a question. I got one question. If you need to go to the bathroom, go for it. Um, yeah. So, one question was, what are we doing with holy water, right? Why is there holy water around the doors? And then there's a follow-up question. I'll do the first one first. Why holy water? 
Any guesses? Bless yourselves, remind you of? Baptism. Baptism, right. So you bless yourself, just like you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One of the, one of the um, like to have the baptismal font right there, and when a funeral happens, the body is right next to the baptismal font when we go back and we sprinkle it. And so you think about that same baptismal water that was given to you on the day of your baptism, on the day when I'm in my casket and the priest comes and anoints my cast, blesses my casket. It's that same holy water, right? It's that water of life that the Lord continues to guide us. So it's important. It reminds us of that. It, um, yeah, of our, it reminds us of our baptism, prepares us for, for death and uh, strengthens us for that. Follow-up question was, where to go? All right, why don't we have holy water? It's purely COVID. We were asked not to have it for sanitary reasons, so we don't. I've bugged, I, let's just put it this way. I've asked my fair share of people to keep it on their radar about when can we have holy water back because it is one of those things that's kind of, come on, it's got to be time. So that's all I want to say about that. Oh, do the sprinkling right? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. We could do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to repeat that question. Okay. So the, the comment was um, one of the ways that holy water um, intersects mass is at the start, you can do the sprinkling right, where um, holy water is blessed, and then you go around and you sprinkle the people. That is, a, that is a real possibility. We'll put our thinking caps together and see how we could, we could get that integrated. The sprinkling's especially uh, for Easter time, right? Because we bless new water at Easter. Ch-ch-ch. All right, we have a couple questions from the interweb. Yes, we have three questions. The first question is, why is the priest's bread so much larger than everyone else's? Is it so that they can see it from the back? I think that's, that's basically, yes. So I guess everybody heard that question. That's cool. Um, so yeah, it basically, why is the priest host bigger so that people can see it? Now, that being said, they make priest hosts that are like waffles, right? They're cut like waffles. And that is aggravating. Why? Because we, we know that every particle of the host is the body of Christ. And if you just put that on a like black tablecloth and you start breaking it, you see little bits of white going all over. So we break the, we always break the host. Ooh, why do we break the host? Anybody know the, uh, anybody ever heard of the multiplication of the loaves? Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, and, or he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. So that breaking is similar to that, also the breaking of Christ's body and his crucifixion. Yeah. So I don't like the big hosts. The ones you have to break so many times, it's like, oh my gosh, I am just distributing particles all over the place. This is terrible. We've got three online, Marlene. we yes. got two more online. The next question is, um, do you kneel uh, or genuflect to the altar or to the tabernacle? Ah, that's a great question. So kneeling and genuflecting. We genuflect to the tabernacle, we bow to the altar. So sometimes you go in a church that's been built 
goofily and you can't find the tabernacle, right? You can't find where Jesus is dwelling. The little red light, that's a sign. That's where the tabernacle is. But some places you go and it's like they put the tabernacle and they think you just don't want to see it. So if you go into a church like that, you can't find the tabernacle anywhere. The appropriate thing is to bow to the altar. If you know where the tabernacle is when you come in, you genuflect. Now, during Mass, our focus shifts, right? During Mass, our focus shifts from what the tabernacle, where God's always dwelling, to the altar where the sacrifice is being offered. So if you notice at Mass, when we come up, Mass hasn't started, right? During the opening hymn, we're going to genuflect because the tabernacle's still the same. As soon as we kiss that altar, every time we pass by, we're bowing to the altar. There's certain times, right, after, Jesus, after we elevate the host, we'll genuflect because there's the body of Christ. But um, generally, as we pass through, we bow to the altar. That's in the, it's in the, in the missile. That's what it says to do. So that's a great question. Then you notice as we're leaving, we all gather right here. We genuflect again. Mass is over. We're going in peace. Next question is, how long do you kneel after communion? Mm. How long do you kneel after communion? So I'm guessing that question's like in reference, like, do you stay kneeling while the priest is purifying the vessels until they sit down? Do you, um, yeah, I'm guessing that's kind of the question. I think it's good for us as like good German people to go to like Latin America at mass at some point or to go to Spain or Italy because it drives you crazy because like the order is berserk, right? You go to mass in Italy, the priest comes down to distribute communion, people just come up haphazardly. It's like they're getting on a subway or something. Like they just pop up, the guy in the back shoots up forward, just passes everybody. You're like, whoa, when do I go, right? There's not this nice orderly, first pew come up, second pew come up. Um, same thing goes with after mass. People are kneeling, some people stand and sing, some people sit down, some people hold their baby. Like you go into a foreign country, especially one that's a little bit, you know, less German. There's not a whole lot of order. That being said, you probably don't want to be the first one to say, I'm going to buck the trend. I'm shooting up from the back for communion. I'm passing everybody. Like nobody wants to be that person, the one to do that first. Um, so the moral of the story is there's not like a set rule as to how long, what you do exactly after communion. In our parishes and in our part of the United States, the practice is to kneel after communion. And really the question is like, how long do you need to thank God before you feel like you've thanked him enough for giving him your life? Uh, we should probably never get up from kneeling then. So, so it's hard to say like, you need to kneel until the priest sits down. Like that's kind of a general custom and that's kind of what we do, so fine. But at this point, we aren't like going back to the chair after we're done purifying the vessels. So um, I don't know, some people have bad knees, they need to sit down. But if, if you're able to pray, why wouldn't you want to pray? So that's that question. That's all I have to say about that. Any other questions? Mm. How do you clean altar linens, right? Things that might have the body of Christ, you soak them in water. So first they go into water and that water goes straight into the ground. So that water doesn't go into the sewage system. So the first thing is you want to put it in the water so that you dissolve all of the particles, right? So you dissolve the particles because if it's no longer bread, it's no longer the body of Christ, 
right? So um, you take some of the precious blood, it gets wiped on the chalice. If it's a stain, that's not the blood of Christ. It's, it's got to be blood, it's, or it's got to have the properties of wine, which means it's a liquid. So the bread, once it dissolves, it's no longer the body of Christ. So you, you put it in water, you let, them, let everything that could be there dissolve, and then that water goes directly into the ground. Most sacristies have a sink. They have two sinks. One that goes, like any other sink, into the sewer, and then wherever that goes, and then one that goes a drain straight into the ground. So that's kind of cool. So if you ever needed to pour stuff in the ground, it's called a sacrarium. There's your word of the day. If you didn't have enough words today, sacrarium is the sink that drains straight into the ground. Great question. Follow-up question. You have the water that needs to be uh, poured into the ground. You don't have a sacrarium. Can you pour it into the ground? I have before. I, I think it's I'm pretty sure it's legitimate. Normally what I do is I'll pull a whole bunch of dirt back, pour it into the ground, and then recover it to make sure, you know, no animal's going to come and do anything or anything like that. I think Father Jedediah has a follow-up. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Ah. Uh, so for those online, Father Jedediah said that um, unless somebody's being really careless, there's not like you open the corporal and there's tons of particles, right? So that's really in case of, in case of something falls, something when you b- fracture the host. Like generally, if you see something, you pick it up, you put it, on the, you put it in the patent or you put it in the chalice, and then you consume it. Yeah. Fun question. What happens when a fly goes into the precious blood? All right. There are multiple answers. One answer, you drink it. First of all, this is just being asked on Facebook Live right before you asked, stated this. I'm right there. I got that ESPN. Um, uh, So, all right. Option number one, you drink the fly. Easy enough, not the end of the world. Lots of stories, it happens. Option number two, uh, investments, they're sometimes called a manipole. I don't know all the things with a manipole, but there was generally a pin in the manipole. I was at mass one time, and this priest said, go get me a pin. To what now? A clothing pin. All right. I went in the sacristy, I dug around, I found a clothing pin. He came out, he stabbed a fly on the pin. The fly had been in the precious blood. He took the fly to the candle and burnt all the precious blood off of the fly. That's the other thing you can do for a fly. You make sure all of that alcohol, right? Alcohol is going to burn before the fly is. So you burn all the, all the uh, precious blood off of the fly. And then I think you can dispose of the fly. Is that right? What happens to the fly then? Oh, there, yeah, there's probably not much left. <laughs> probably don't. Yeah, yeah. Then I give it to my brother. Other questions? Any questions online? Nothing? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I told you the, the, the mass is just like we're copy and pasting straight from the Bible. I missed a couple, maybe some really important ones. Okay, after the Our Father, after the sign of peace, we 
Lamb of God three times. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. I genuflect. There's another, there's another silent prayer there. Um, and this is the longest one. We had to memorize all of these for our, our class to celebrate mass, um, which I thought was like, this lame, but it's really good. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, who by the will, actually, I think it says we stand upright. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, who by the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, your death gave life to this world. Free me by this, your most holy body and blood from all my sins. Keep me always faithful to your commandments and never let me be parted from you. So that's the prayer that we make before receiving Holy Communion. And you genuflect, take the, the body and the blood of Christ and say, what do we say? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Pause. Anybody know where those came from? Behold the Lamb of God. Who said those? Which saint said those when he saw Jesus? His last name rhymes with Aptist. John the Baptist, that's right. All right. Uh, St. John the Baptist, he sees Jesus summoned and he says, behold the lamb of God, which means a whole lot, right? You think about in Exodus, they slaughter those lambs in the Passover. He says, Jesus, behold the lamb of God. Boom, copy and paste straight from sacred scripture. Your response is, Lord, I worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say, Couple of things about that response. One of the cool things is it says, the priest and the people say that line. So if you notice, I say that one along with you. Sometimes it's dialogue, right? I say, the Lord be with you. I'm not supposed to repeat and with your spirit, but I say, Lord, I am not worthy to enter under, I'm supposed to say that. So we're all in that same boat, all right? That's interesting thing number one, is that we all say that. Part number two is, where do we copy and paste that one from sacred scripture? Anybody know that? Any of our, of our young people know that one? The centurion. So this guy, some people come to Jesus. They say, hey, Lord, this centurion, he's done a lot of good things, and he's got a servant that's sick. You should really heal his servant. And Jesus is like, all right. And so he heads off. The, sir, the centurion comes up. The soldier comes out and meets him. And guess what he says? Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. Like we just straight up copied and pasted that from, um, from sacred scripture. So that's, I mean, that's really important. And that's, that's awesome that, um, you know, sometimes the Catholic faith gets accused of being unbiblical, but when you come to mass, it's just the Bible opened up for you, right? It's all of these like phrases that just kind of get brought together. It's the life of Jesus in the homily. It's, it's the sacrifice of the mass presented before you, right? You know, when we build churches, it's not like a stadium, right? You go into Wapakoneta's high school gym, the action happens on the floor, right? The action happens on the lowest part and we all look down upon the action, right? Whether it's volleyball, whether it's basketball, whether it's a concert, everything happens on the floor. A church, 
supposed to be built where the highest place is, is the altar, right? So you're going up, like Jesus goes up to Calvary. It's the highest place. It's, and granted, it helps visually to be able to see, but it's why the church isn't supposed to be built, and some of them are like this, like an auditorium where everything goes down to it, to the, to the altar, but everything goes up because it's like Mount Calvary, you know, the mountain that Jesus was crucified on. So we enter into the world of the Bible. It's not that mass is unbiblical, it's all over the place. We got the road to Emmaus, St. Justin Marty talks about it. Um, it's incredible. Any more questions? That seems sufficient. Okay, that is. We, <clears throat> we have some questions. Oh. Why is consuming the body of Christ mandatory and consuming the blood of Christ is not. We have several more too, so. Okay, so why is consuming the body of Christ mandatory? It is not mandatory. We have to receive the Eucharist how many times a year? Once a year, that's our bare minimum is to receive the Eucharist once a year. We have to come to mass every week, except during COVID. Um, but you know, if you're here tonight, Clearly, you're getting out, so probably come to Mass. Um, definitely come to Mass. Um, so once a year, we have to consume the Eucharist. But for example, somebody who is, um, who is gluten intolerant, somebody has a terrible case of celiac, <clears throat> and they can receive the precious blood, right? And they don't have to receive the body of Christ first. So, um, so generally, we distribute the, the body of Christ, um, and that's the primary species, we call it, the primary species that Jesus is distributed under. It's the most, um, you know, it's the greatest treasure we have, the body and blood of Christ. So it's the, e it's the easiest way not to be careless, right? Precious blood, um, it gets spilled, it gets, oh, it's, uh, there's a whole lot of things that can happen. Um, yeah, and there's places in the world that they just don't simply have the money to distribute the precious blood. So everybody distributes the body of Christ. So you don't have to receive the, um, the body of Christ to receive the precious blood. People who have celiac are a case in point of that. But generally, the tradition in the Roman Catholic Church, as opposed to like the Byzantine, is to dis distribute the body of Christ. I guess that's sufficient. Yeah, that's right. You get the full Eucharist of both species. It's not like you're just getting half of Christ if you only get the body of Christ. Even if you get half a host, you're not getting half of Jesus. And every particle, no matter how big, how small, is still total of Christ. Receiving both, the church says, is a greater symbolism, but it doesn't have to be done. Actually, there's a document about distribution of the precious blood, and it gives like a few cases when we should, like at a wedding, at big feast days. Every day at daily mass is not mentioned. It's at certain times, so. Because you're still receiving all of Jesus. All right. How do you pick the songs at mass? How do you pick the Eucharistic prayer? Pick the Eucharistic prayer. Um, if it is one of the days that there is an insert, you best better believe that insert in Eucharistic prayer one is getting prayed. Um, if, there's a saint, if there's a saint who's in the first Eucharistic prayer, I always pick that Eucharistic, the first one. If, there's, if he's the saint, he or she is not in the Eucharistic prayer, generally I use three because there's, in the third Eucharistic prayer, you can insert a saint's name. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's kind of whimsical. A lot of people will just pray one. 
uh, Eucharistic prayer one, or they'll just pick one. Like some priests, they only pray Eucharistic prayer two. I think that's like, ah, oh, we want to get over, get done with this as soon as possible. Let's just do that. It's crazy. Um, how do you pick the songs? Well, that's a great question. Generally, we shouldn't because the church provides what we call entrance antiphons, and generally those are what's sung, right? We don't pick the readings every Mass. We don't pick all of this. Like, for example, March 19th is the feast day of St. Joseph. I thought I knew the entrance antiphon and a tune for it off the top of my head. I don't. I was wrong. But um, so there's an entrance. You can see this, right? Entrance antiphon. We recite those right now at daily mass, but there's some of them that you would like set to music and do like a responsorial song. I think there's one that's like, Joseph, son of David, do not, where's that from? Uh, just, am I just making that up? Ah, rats. Uh, Father Jedediah knows the music. Oh, oh wait, there is one that I know off the top of my head. The presentation, February 2nd, right? The entrance antiphon, <clears throat> is a light of revelation to the Gentiles in glory of your people, Israel. We would, ugh, this was one of my favorite days at the seminary. We would start in a back chapel and the presentation that's that uh, there when Jesus is presented in the temple, there's a blessing of candles. And then generally there's a procession of candles. So we would start in the back chapel and we would process at like 6.30 in the morning with the candles to the main chapel for mass and sing, <clears throat> Lumen ad revelationem gentium, et gloriam plebis tuae Israel. So I say that to say, the question was, how do you pick the music? Generally, we, we don't really have to. The church provides some really, really great music. And it would be so wonderful if um, we all could know that. Now, granted, okay, you pick music. It should be about God, not about us right? You want to get me on a tirade? I'll talk about the song, All Are Welcome. That's about us. That's not about God. We don't come here to talk about us. We come here to talk about God. So I don't want to end on that, that kind of note, but uh, the Mass is great, right? The Mass is one of the most beautiful things that God gives us on earth because we enter into the very life of Jesus to his offering to the Father. So hopefully you learned a little bit about the Mass. Hopefully you fell a little bit in more love with Jesus Christ and what he does for us because it looks like we're wrapping up. Is that right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you give us the Eucharist as the memorial of your suffering and death. May our worship of your body and blood in this sacrament help us to experience the peace of the kingdom and we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Have a great night.